Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. We often uh, hear about the amazing attributes of the human brain, how many you know, amazing cells there are there and the capacity of the brain. And, and sometimes, too, we hear this, uh, we uh, are told that we're only using about 10% of our brain and um, the, there would be, you know, enormous amount of increased capacity if we uh, could use the, the rest of it. Well, actually, that's probably uh, not um, uh, correct because... Um, we we actually do use quite a lot of our 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 brain as as it is, and the brain has amazing uh, repair mechanisms. But recently, I came across a, a very interesting article. On, it was uh, titled "The Incredible Human Brain." It was written by a um, a doctor, Peter Lyon, um, who is uh, has his doctorate in uh, neuroscience. Um, and uh, works in this area. And he had some, uh, his article revealed some amazing insights. Some of it's quite technical, but he um, points out that the brain, of course, is part of what we call the human uh, central nervous system, which includes not only the, the brain, but uh, also the, the spinal cord. And this, um, this system includes um, 100 billion nerve cells. Um, and that's, uh, if we look at that, that's roughly, um, if you've got 1,000 million is um, a billion. So 100 billion is 100,000 million nerve cells. But we also have about... A trillion uh, neuralgia or supporting cells that support these nerve cells within the brain. So there's the the brain has this quite enormous uh, structure of of particular cells of these functioning uh, cells, and then of course there are the nerves that are outside the brain. So while we've got the brain and the spinal cord. We also have the, uh, the nervous system, or peripheral nervous system. And so this is the system that actually delivers the sensory information back to the brain and the central nervous system. So when you think about when you touch something, there's a signal that goes from, say, if you touch with your fingertips to your brain or if somebody brushes alongside you um, and uh, it um, sends a uh, a signal uh, to your to your brain, you or you feel, you know, something crawling up your up up your leg, and you hope that it's not a spider or something like that. And you you know you brush down. All those reactions are all coming from signals that are sent uh, to the brain by the uh, nervous system. Now, of course, we often hear about the you know the different weights of the brain and how uh, men's brains are slightly larger than women's brains often. But um, on, on average, the human brain itself you know, weighs about um, three pounds or just less than one and a half kilos. 
And so it's, it's um, you know, a reasonably sized organ in the, uh, in, in the body there. And it also uses quite an amount of energy to, to run the brain. Uh, the stats are that it uses about 20% of our energy. And that's why we can have what we call nervous exhaustion. And uh, people who can, are doing a lot of mental work can actually, you know, get get quite hungry. And the main fuel for the brain, of course, is 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 glucose, is is sugar. But we have a well, the brain enables us to live in this in this physical world in a in a special way. So in in the world around us we we have our, all the different senses we call sight and sound taste uh, and smell and uh, and of course um, touch the the sensation that we have now the image that we actually form of our world and when we look out we can see trees and humans mountains and Plains and, and cities and populations and parts of our home and motor cars and so forth. This this world and we've created a lot of world around us, and essentially, that world is in our mind, and our mind is separate from our brain. Our mind is our our thoughts, but continuously, all the time, we're getting inputs from the environment around us that are being. Um, interpreted by our brain. Now, one of the fascinating things is that when we see a sight with our eye, right, that little photons of light affect the photocells in our eye and those are converted into little electrical signals that are carried. And that electrical current is uh, carried by ions. And so if we dissolve salt you know, common table salt in water, it dissolves and forms sodium ions and chlorine ions. And these are individual atoms that are carrying a positive charge. And the same if you put, um, uh, connect a battery um, or two wires and a battery um, and a light in a circuit with a cell with some salt water in it, the light will light up because the salt water will conduct the electricity. And so the same thing happens in these uh, nerve systems that actually take the impulses, the um, these electrical signals that are produced by touch and taste and smell, the little smell glands, um, olfactory nerves or olfactory glands send little signals, the olfactory nerves that send these through. Um, same with our ear, the amazing arrangement of uh, little bones and amplifying systems eventually connects to an electrical system. Now, what happens is it actually those signals that come that represent what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we feel and hear, these are essentially converted into a little electrical currents and they're changed. They're like little fluctuations in voltage. Now, one of the important things is that these little fluctuations in voltage that are carried along represent a code. They're a code and they travel to the brain via nerve fibres, which are the cables. And when that little electrical signal gets to the brain, it's decoded. 
And so what the signal that comes is interpreted by our brain to see, and we see, most of us can see in vivid colour, we can hear the sounds of waterfalls, we can feel wind uh, blowing uh, on our skin, we can taste the um, delicious flavours from a, a ripe, juicy apricot or, or whatever our favourite food might be. Um, all these impulses are carried by little electrical codes from those sensory organs to our brain. Our brain interprets those codes and produces that picture for us. Now, evolutionists have to believe that that mechanism, that whole mechanism that involves our sensory organs, these little sensors that are there, that produce the little electrical signal that then goes to the brain and the codes within the brain are the ability of the brain to be actually decode that signal and then construct an image for us that we see or a smell concept that we see or a sound that we hear and enjoy. And it's interesting that part of us that enjoys these things is our mind and our mind is non-material. Our mind or our thoughts, which are influenced by what we see, is non-material. But it's absolutely fascinating that the brain can translate and interpret those signals, construct that image that enables our non-material thoughts to actually see that and, and our consciousness, it affects our, our consciousness. And it's actually that um, scientists really don't know this, this mechanism. It, it still hasn't been worked out. And the fascinating thing is that our brain can handle all these inputs at the same time. So it can analyse the inputs from sight, sound, feel, smell, all at the same time. And one of the things that amazes me sometimes is the amazing coordination that that sports people have. You know, I see some of these amazing cross-country skiers and the skis are moving so fast and yet they can coordinate the movements and balance, get round objects, jump off objects. Or you think of... Um, uh, people, you know, playing uh, high-speed sports like uh, squash um, or even even cricket. So you've got this high-speed ball coming towards you. You make all these judgments where to, to hit it and, and so forth. Now, a lot of these are, are made subconsciously, you know, in that, that we train ourselves to be able to respond to these very rapid movements because, I mean, who knows where the ball's going to come off on the squat court, the speed. You've got to adjust the angle that you hit that so hopefully it gets back into the right square or so forth or whether it's in tennis. But the thing is that the brain has to interpret all those signals that are coming at speed. It has to estimate when uh, the speed of the ball coming and say you have two eyes, you can judge its distance, judge its speed. These are all inputs that are coming in. But all those signals are carried by codes, codes that bear no resemblance to 
the actual information that they're carrying. And they're, they're truly codes, just like a language, but they're a code, an electrical code, carried as an electrical voltages. And those electrical voltages then have to be decoded and tra translated. So the brain is, is a truly intricate and amazing machine. And how you know, evolutionists teach this simple process that gradually mutations occurred in little bacteria that don't have brains and that these bacteria slowly evolved into you know, more complex organisms like a yeast and then into a more complex organism like a little worm and so forth. And all through random mutations, changing the DNA code that, and that DNA code bears no resemblance to the things it's encoding for. But so random blind mutations to the code of a, some sort of little or, you know, original single-celled organism somehow produce the complexity of the brain. That's, that's what our children are being taught. That's what people are being taught in universities, that random chemical mutations, blind chemical mutations to a DNA code somehow over time produced our working brain. And I, I think, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that is absolutely impossible. It doesn't happen. When we do the maths, when we look at the how mutations work, it, it's absolutely, totally impossible. Now, this neuroscientist, Dr. Peter Lyon, gives a, a, a technical example, and I'll read a little bit of it to you. It, it says... Um, how our body clock works. And so we have our circadian uh, rhythms that are involved with uh, sleep and wake cycle and control uh, many of this. Now, these are actually controlled in our brain. And so the one of the circadian rhythm is controlled by the release of a hormone called melatonin from a tiny little gland in the brain called the pineal gland. And it's interesting, there's an optic pathway, a little fibre optic channel from our eye that takes the actual light, the actual sunlight that our eyes receive, or bright light, not necessarily looking right at the sun, but the bright light that comes in, travels down this little optic pathway into the pineal gland, and that helps regulate what the, the pineal gland does. And it helps regulate the cycles of sleep and getting up, eating, and so forth, going to the toilet. Um, now, another uh, part of the brain is another little organ, the hypothalamus, and that controls the autonomic nervous system. That's, you know, our heart rate, our breathing rate, uh, these sort of things that are sort of auto automatic. And uh, also some of the hormone productions. And it's also involved in this circadian, you know, day-night uh, cycle. There's another... Um, well, there, there's so many actual little parts to the brain here as we look down and look at the uh, different uh, signals that are generated. Uh, but this pineal gland produces this melatonin of a night time. So bright lights actually shut down the uh, melatonin production. And it's only at night time when we have darkness that this melatonin begins to be uh, produced. And, of course, melatonin is quite actually powerful 
um, anti-cancer hormone too. It's a, it's a very important hormone. And, um, of course, there are all these other reactions that occur within the, within the brain um, when we you know, often talk about these simple uh, connections between the brain and the different chemicals that are produced in the brain, like uh, GABA and so forth, we forget that there are all a whole of complex neurotransmitters and receptors at the synapses or connections between the nerves. And then we know that the levels of different hormones affect how these uh, particular reactions occur and how different receptors react. So the, the biochemistry of the brain in itself is extremely complex. And when we have to think about our brain is constructed from all these different uh, cells that make up all the different parts of the brain. There's not only the, you know, the actual, uh, what we call the, the, the brain cells themselves, or the nerve cells that constitute our memory and so forth, and they're, they're supporting neuralgia cells. But there's also all the cells that make up and the physical structure and the physical structure of these different components within the brain, like the pineal gland and so forth. All these structures are encoded for in the DNA. So we had this DNA is this comp part of this complex model that encodes for all of us. But within that is the code to build the human brain. And again, as I've point, pointed out, if we're teaching people evolution, we're teaching that random mutations, random chemical mutations, altered and, and somehow synthesised new arrangements of four chemicals that we abbreviate A, C, T and G, that's what the, the code that we form them, that's the four code letters, so that those four chemicals can encode the information you know, to build the brain. And, of course, the, the code is, like Morse code, which is dots and dashes, combinations of those letters, A, C, T and G, constitute the code to build the brain. And then, of course, we have the code reader. We have to have a, a code reader. The ribosome as well has to be there to decode the information in order for the part components to be constructed. When we think that, again, our children are being taught that this amazing system just formed by chance. So not only do we have the amazing design of the brain, not only do we have the amazing biochemicals in the brain, all the different types of cells, not only do we have the ability in the brain, and we still don't fully understand how this works, to interpret the electrical code signals that come from our different sensory organs, they are decoded in the brain as well. And how that works, again, we're still not we still don't really understand how that process works. And yet the ability to all do that supposedly arose by chance, random sorting of four chemicals, A, C, T and G, to form these complex codes. It involves hundreds of thousands, millions of letters in the code. So there's millions of the, the the arrangements of A, C, T and G and all the different amounts to millions of individual letters that describe this arose by chance, that worked. You know, to me, it just is 
is so obvious. One of the other things, of course, is that the people sometimes liken our brain to a computer. Well, our brain is far superior to any, any computer. And while they both contain complex circuits that carry currents, the analogy only goes so far. So, for example, in long-term memory, a computer uses the little transistors that store the information, and which is capable in the transistor only capable of two states, on or off, one or zero. And so with billions of these little electronic devices, you can store a lot of information. But the brain does not... Uh, appear to store information in just one specific region. It's actually spread across the brain. And, uh, for example, the hippocampus appears to be very important for um, consolidating long-term memories. And, you know, so the different parts of the brain have, um, you know, different roles in, in terms of, of that. Um, but the brain also has the ability to repair damage and also it seem, it has a lot of built-in uh, redundancy on what we call neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the ability to reorganise these connections within the brain so that other parts of the brain can actually take over the role of damaged regions. Now that's something a computer can't do. Computers can't do that. And um, neuroplasticity, or the ability of the brain to produce these new neural pathways and new memories uh, within the brain, is, uh, is, is very important. Uh, There's an interesting little um, piece I, I noticed there that um, an extreme example that was given by uh, Dr. Peter Lyon in his article was the removal of half the brain, a cerebral hemisphere uh, that uh, sometimes is used in the treatment of particular seizure disorders. And actually this technique was uh, pioneered by creationist neurosurgeon Dr Ben Carson at uh, uh, John Hopkins University there. And if this operation, that is actually remove half the brain, if this operation is done when the person is a relatively young age, that's reported that the long-term effects on the cognitive function or the ability to, to learn and memorise are actually often minimised, again, due to the amazing neuroplasticity of the brain. And um, I think, you know, if you removed half of a computer, <laughs> I don't think it would work again, and the computer can't repair itself. It's, so when we think about the amazing feature of the brain. And when we think about a computer, and you know, people like to you know, compare brains and computers, but just think how long it has taken humans to develop computers. And these are intelligent scientists with lots of training in physics, learning the laws of physics and mathematics to, and engineering to develop the modern computer that we have and reduce its size and understand semiconductors. It's, it's taken decades and decades and decades. Um, I uh, was studying physics and applied mathematics at university in the mid-1960s uh, 
And I can remember I was uh, in the last class in 1966. I was in the last class that uh, we taught valve theory in physics too. And uh, that year we also learnt uh, semiconductor theory. So that was the last year they were going to teach valve theory and they had introduced semiconductor theory. And I can remember, I think it was in the, the second year that computing was taught in the university that I had attended, computer programming. And so when we think of the years that it had taken to you know, develop, you have Maxwell's equations and electromagnetism and so forth was understood back in the you know, 1800s, late 1800s. But here by the 1960s, uh, the computers were, were huge. Um, I was working for BHP at the time, Broken Hill Proprietary Limited, which is the largest steelmaker in the Southern Hemisphere, working in their research uh, facilities. And um, the, the BHP had one computer. We had a, the huge computer at head office and we used punch cards to send the, the information over there and there was another computer at the university. So... There were only these few computers. So it's taken all these minds, all these years, and of course now we have the tiny little mini ones in our mobile phones and, and watches. But that's intelligent design. The brain is amazing evidence for the existence of God. And it's interesting, the Bible talks about God being non-material. God is, is spiritual. And this is something that I think I just can't emphasize enough that who we are is not uh, is a non-material entity. It's our thoughts. Our thoughts are who we are. This body is just a, a framework or a tent. It's sensory organisms, organs that is a machine that puts these inputs that allows our mind, which is non-material, to operate and to do things and to enjoy the world. And we're, we're programmed to do that. So we have all these little programs in our brain that can take these signals, our brain can interpret them, and then that is connected to our consciousness. And you know, scientists still don't know how that happens. Scientists can't explain consciousness. Matter of fact, there isn't really a, a really tight, defined definition of consciousness. And how this physical world links to consciousness and the fact that our thoughts, which are non-material, can affect the physical world, can affect our physical body. All this, to me, so clearly points that we have a supernatural, non-material creator, God, who made us. And the Bible reveals that that God, that creator God, was Jesus that God himself came to earth, our desperation to renew the relationship with us. And we've fallen away so, so far from that when you think about all the violence and things that are going on in the world today. But the Bible tells us that God loves us so much and he is planning to recreate us again. When we die, it's not the end. We, If we love Jesus, if we turn to God, we fall asleep and God will one day reawaken us with a new type of body in the in the earth made new. Remember, you can re-listen to this program by um, just Googling 3abnaustralia.org.au. So that's 3abnaustralia.org.au. 
and uh, click on the listen button and down there you'll see these programs um, that, are, that are listed there. And of course there's my book, Evolution Impossible 2, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.